0: Rabbi Hanok Teller here in Israel. We had the opportunity to tour Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Remembrance Center here in Jerusalem. And our time together passed all too quickly, but we were able to learn more about the history that led up to the Holocaust and how the Jews were so terribly treated. Standing there in Yad Vashem gave us the chance to be informed about history. Rabbi Teller talked a little bit about the importance of that. You know, Israel is beautiful, and we've gotten to see fantastic sights here on the virtual voyage. We've learned more about the Bible and the history of the Jewish nation. But we also have to recognize that there's great sadness associated with the history of the Jewish people. See, after the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered in the desert for way too many years. This was when Moses was their leader, and, and God provided for them. He, they were his chosen people. He wasn't gonna just drop them. You know, They had food and water, but they didn't really have a home. But God made a promise. He promised that the land of Israel, or Canaan, as it was once called, he promised that that land would become theirs. But we know that for the Israelites to take that land, there was a struggle because they didn't believe they were strong enough to conquer those already in the land. And of course, maybe it shows a little bit of a lack of faith because God said that he would be on their side And that they would be able to conquer the land there were two brave men we talked about briefly i I think a few tours ago joshua and caleb and they helped spur the people on well this was especially beneficial just because joshua as a side note he was younger and he ended up being a good leader for israel after moses died moses never made it into the promised land uh, because if you remember he disobeyed god he was trying to get the water out of the rock for for the people the second time and he was told by god because of his act of, of disobedience That he wouldn't enter the promised land. So you can imagine, well maybe we can't, but we can try to imagine his sorrow, one act of disobedience, and his punishment was not entering the promised land that he had searched for his entire life. So in the end, Israel takes the land for their own, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel that we now stand in, and they settle there. So over the years people groups come, and people groups go, and they try to conquer the Israelites, At times, God allows for them to be conquered, such as with the Assyrian exile. At other times, he protects them. But the final straw was in the early 500s BC when the Babylonians came and they conquered the Israelites and exiled them. Daniel, as in Daniel from Daniel in the lion's den, was taken to Babylon as part of this exile by by Nebuchadnezzar. A little bit of a mouthful there. So while the Israelites tried to regain control of their land, it was honestly unsuccessful. And then we had the destruction of the temple by the Romans. And then a few years later, there was the Bar Kokhba revolt, where a few Jews tried to rebel against the Roman emperor uh, Hadrian. After this revolt was squashed by the Romans, the Jews couldn't even enter Jerusalem. So you see how badly this went. Essentially, from 500 BC and on, it's a disaster for the Jewish nation. And, well, maybe they have uh, some, some hope in their future. But no, at this point, the Jews had no home, and this problem continued into the Middle Ages. They spread out across various continents. And this is actually where we get the two main groups of Jews that we know of today. We know of Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews as two main groups. Obviously, there are many more, but those are the two main groups you hear about a lot. So Sephardic Jews settled in the Spain-Portugal area, that Iberian Peninsula, and Ashkenazi Jews were in the Upper East areas of, of Europe. So you also have to note that these distinctions never would have existed if they had stayed in Israel, right? They'd all just be Israeli Jews. Because Israel is such a small area, geographically speaking. It really is. I mean, you can just drive from the top to the bottom in only a few hours. It's actually crazy. And we'll do that very soon. So the Jews are trying to lay low during this period, but they're still persecuted. It almost seems counterintuitive. If they're God's chosen people, why do they still suffer so much? Fellow virtual voyagers, I challenge you to think on that, really. Why is the nation of Israel, a nation God has clearly said, is his chosen people that he's gonna watch out for. Why is that nation persecuted so severely by many other nations in every time period of history, literally? You know, I have an answer that I've thought about as I've been in Israel, but I'd encourage you to think on it yourself before we discuss it on maybe one of the upcoming tours. So during this time, Middle Ages and beyond, the land of Israel turned into a wasteland. The Jews were not there tending to it. Various people groups were coming along and trying to conquer it, yeah, (laughs) <laughs> That's right. The land of Israel, the geographic land of Israel that we know of today, it's not just been disputed in many of our lifetimes. We, we know that there's been a lot of disputes over who owns what in Israel. It actually goes back way earlier. It's really funny to think back on this history that the land of Israel has literally been a disputed geographical area, one of the most disputed geographical areas in the entire world since its founding. So now let's skip ahead to the 1800s. This is a really interesting story that ties in a great writer. So in the 1800s, there is a significant invention that came to pass, the steamboat. And this meant that many people wanted to come to the land of Israel. At that time, it was called Palestine. And all these people wanted to come and see it, right? These pilgrims, they finally have the steamboat they could get over, in you know, an efficient amount of time. And you also have to keep in mind that back in the 1800s, a working knowledge of the Bible was very common. If you saw someone on the street and you started throwing around names like, I don't know, um, Assyrians, Ishmael, Jochebed, there's a good chance a stranger would probably have some conceptualization and expectation of who those people were. So therefore, when these travelers came on the steamboat to Palestine, to Israel, they had these ideas in their mind of what they would see and what they'd be able to learn from their, study of the own, uh, or from their own study of the Bible. So one of those travelers was a man most of us probably know. Maybe you have read some of his popular literature. And this man was Samuel Clemens, or or Mark Twain, as you might know him. Mark Twain got in a boat to go to Palestine, and he was planning on writing a collection of articles about what he saw over there. So Mark Twain, while he was traveling with a group of these pilgrims who were ecstatic to see this land, and as he said, they would cry hysterically at every sight that they saw. Now, Mark Twain had a bit of a different outlook than them. Uh, He didn't see nice, bustling cities or roads. I mean, well, to be fair, the pilgrims didn't see that either. They were just there for that religious pilgrimage. But here's a quote that I think is really powerful from his book, Innocence Abroad. He wrote this concerning his travels. He says that the farther we went, the hotter the sun got, the more rocky and bare, repulsive and dreary the landscape became. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Can you imagine someone describing the land we're in right now like that, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM? If we just look around or remember what we've seen so far, we see absolute beauty. Just turn around and, and look and at this beautiful land, and it's just gorgeous. It's marvelous. Israel is also the place where some of the greatest technological and medical advancements have ever happened. And then contrast that with Mark Twain's statement that there were basically no humans. The entire land was prim- primitive, and even the cactus, the cactus, you know, the cactus like, that's supposed to love the desert. Well, the cactus had even, you know, gone out. Mark Twain illustrates the state of the land of Israel not even two centuries ago, think about that. A few generations ago, that's what Israel was like. But now look at it, it's beautiful. So what exactly happened? So to understand this, we have to backtrack a little bit. We don't just jump from Mark Twain's statement about how bad it looks here to the beauty we see now, and also especially all of the Jews in the land now. So we all know at least a little bit about World War I, and Rabbi Teller did a great job of helping to orient us to the transition from World War I to World War II, and how the Jews were affected in that. And then during World War II, there was the gruesome, horrible, and unimaginable Holocaust. The Jewish people, God's own people, were treated in a way much worse than the way even an unkind person would treat a dog on the street begging. Simply because these people were Jewish, they were marched off to concentration camps, murdered and treated as though they were less than life. Some Jews saw what was happening in Europe and they tried to escape. They went to various countries, they tried to find asylum. Jews during World War II even showed up in the United States. They pleaded for help, pleaded for asylum. Embarrassingly, even the United States turned them away. So you can maybe start to see where this is going because the Jews had nowhere to go. So some went back to Europe, and they would face the gas chambers or the concentration camps. Others went into that desolate land that Mark Twain had described, the land of Israel. This land really hadn't been inhabited by the Jewish people for millennia, but it was seeing a return of the Jewish people. And this is because they had nowhere else to go for refuge. So the Holocaust helped prompt this Aliyah, this immigration back to Israel of the Jewish people. And we're still seeing that today. So I also should be clear here, I'm not saying that the Holocaust was in any way good, right? It was a mass murdering of completely innocent lives. But God and his sovereignty worked through the utter atrocities of the Holocaust to bring the Jewish nation back into the land that he promised them. It's also interesting to think about this. In the 1800s, which was the time when Mark Twain was visiting and writing his book, there were only 7,000 Jews in the land, But today, you're you're, gonna—I mean, you're not gonna believe this. There are over seven million Jews in Israel, and that number is continuing to grow. So this desolate land of Israel that Mark Twain described, with no one here, the cactus had gone. Well, that land is now growing and thriving. I also should note, uh, just as as a historical note here, that in between the Holocaust and the present day, we would hit the period of Israel's war for independence, and I know we keep putting that off, but it's such a fantastic story, and I have a special look at area I actually want us to go see and and kind of survey one of the major battlegrounds, so we're going to hold off on on checking that one out for now. So, wow, I I know that's a bit of a tangent, but I felt like we really needed to discuss all of that as a supplement to Rabbi Teller's tour of Yad Vashem, and I hope that it helps you be a more informed traveler. Because as much fun as as it is to be a tourist, and believe me, I know, I've been a tourist here, I love it here, I'm a tourist with you all. I want you to understand why we're here, and the history behind the beauty that we're now blessed to see. With that, let me tell you where we are off to today, here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We're going to head down Jaffa Street and then we're gonna make a left at Jaffa Street. So normally when we're going to the Western Wall or the Old City, you'll remember that we keep on going straight down Jaffa Street and we end up entering through the Jaffa Gate. Well, instead today, we're gonna walk all the way down past the Muslim Quarter, to Herod's gate, which is another entrance into the old city. Remember that there are multiple gates that we can enter into the old city by, and there's only actually one gate that's currently sealed, the golden gate up there on the Temple Mount, which we actually saw. And you'll remember that the Jews believe that when their Messiah comes back, he'll enter through that gate. But for now, it's sealed, can't get through it. That's the only gate though that we can't enter the old city through. So again, this is just another opportunity to take a gate into the old city. Well, except we're not going into the old city. So we're gonna continue just a little bit ahead, where we're going to find the Rockefeller Museum in front of us, and the Rockefeller Museum is an archaeology museum. Yes, archaeology. Before you all sigh and moan, like I, um, I I'll admit I may have done when I first heard I had to spend the day here. Uh, just trust me. I promise to do all I can not to bore you on our tours. I hope I make good on that. It will also inform one of our upcoming tours where we're going to take a day trip to see a storage shed of wood. I know, we're getting so interesting here on the virtual voyage. No, yeah, that's all I'm gonna give you for now. Let's just leave that for now. So the Rockefeller Museum, back to this, we're only going to see a little part of it, and that's the part that we as tourists are allowed to go in. The Rockefeller Museum works very closely with various archeological teams, and it has many fascinating projects that are being worked on behind the closed doors, right? I mean, Israel has so many layers that we've talked about, like literally layers that archaeologists can dig into. And so there are so many projects happening and they're trying to discover things and trying to piece together history. And so we can't see that right now. But what they have done is they put what they have discovered out on display. So we'll be able to enjoy that. As we head down Jaffa Street, it's early in the morning. We might be at the museum for a while. So how um, how about we stop for some cuisine? Here's a dedicated hummus restaurant right up here. It's a good one too, so we're gonna definitely stop right in here. Okay, come on in. I'm an American. I thought the American hummus we have was pretty good. Okay, some brands are better than others back in the States, right? But I never had a problem with store-bought hummus uh, before I traveled to Israel. And now we have a problem, albeit a very first world problem. American hummus can never live up to what is here in Israel. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that this land is blessed by God, so that the produce is just overall better. I'm half joking. Some might call me a plain person. Kind of true. But I also just go for the regular hummus here with the olive oil drizzle in the middle. Add some warm pita bread, which we're going to enjoy in a second, and some veggie sticks. And you really have a treat that can't be beat. Okay, I know all of you virtual voyagers. Not every single one of you is as plain as I am. So I'll get a spicy version, a version with some tahini on top. And I think I see up there on the sign a new one, some veggies with olives sitting on top too. Okay, that sounds good. Yum, yum. All right, here it comes, everyone. Dig on in. I can tell by some of your facial expressions that a few of you may be weirded out by the fact that the hummus is hot. Yep, mm mm-hmm. In America, we get cold hummus. And we keep the uh, store-bought hummus uh, we get refrigerated. So I guess you could say that's the beauty of Israeli hummus, is that it's not. So they actually blend up the chickpeas right back there in their room, fresh for us, and serve it so it's warm. And I understand maybe the temperature throws you off a bit, but hey, you'll get used to it. You'll be fine. How about that taste though? Can you, can you imagine something better? I am so glad that we stopped for this because now we have enough energy to continue on our walk and over to the Rockefeller Museum. As we walk past Herod's Gate here, see on the right there? Yep, that's Herod's Gate. You'll now look, okay, you're gonna to need to turn left here, straight ahead. You'll see that hexagonal tower uh, structure kind of thing sticking straight up and that's actually where we're headed. All right, so let's just walk on in. I'm going to tell security we're here here for the museum. All right, we're good. In we go. All right, let's drop our backpacks off here in the coat room. Uh, no big bags are allowed in the museum for a few reasons. A big one is that they don't want us swinging around, not realizing that our back size is bigger than usual. And then can you imagine if you swing your backpack around and let's say that there's some artifact that's very expensive, very ancient, and you knock it off, that would be highly unfortunate, because I doubt that any of us have the amount of money to uh, make up for that. Well, really, it can never be made up. I mean, honestly, th- those, those things are priceless in, in a certain respect. So just drop your backpacks off here. Simple, uh, simple solution here. Alright, let's go ahead on in here on the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Since our time is short, I'll let you come back on one of our days off and kind of read the various signs detailing the coins and the pottery in front of us. No charge to get in here, all you have to do is walk on down Jaffa Street, make the left, uh, walk past Herod's Gate and you'll see it right in front of you. So come on down with me. The main thing I want us to see here is in this room. What do you see? That's right, you see a bunch of old pieces of wood. Exciting times, I tell you, don't you love to see a bunch of old pieces of wood? Okay, seriously, let me tell you the story of why this is here and why I'm actually really excited to see wood. This is wood that we believe is from Solomon's temple. Okay, if you remember in the Bible, Solomon built the temple of God, right, the first temple. And there was a man, a king really named uh, Hiram, who actually gave Solomon cedar wood for his temple. Right, because the land of Israel, maybe you've looked around, well, we obviously have, There, there aren't a surplus of trees, right? So you're not going to be able to just get a bunch of trees and then start to build your nice temple so they actually had to get wood shipped to them and so that's what uh, hiram was doing and we also know later that solomon's temple was destroyed so in the process of that destruction we might assume that the wood was lost forever but eventually the muslims came to the temple mount and they built the alaska mosque we saw that when we were up there on the temple mount right remember that mosque to the right when we just entered you look right you saw it right there yep but you also might say, wait a second, it does not look like it was made out of this wood, it looks really new. That's right, the mosque eventually needed an update and the wood used for the mosque when it was originally built pre-update times was thrown into a pile. So the cool thing about that wood that was used for the mosque is that we actually believe uh, based on some dating and also the circumstances, like I said, wood was a hard thing to get. We also believe that the wood used for the original Alaska mosque was the wood used for Solomon's temple. Like I've said, wood was not just something that people could uh, get back hundreds of years ago even. And we talked about in Solomon's time, you couldn't get wood, but even hundreds of years ago because we're in this desert. So when the temple was destroyed, there was a good chance that the wood would have been saved for another project because people would have realized how valuable it was. And we believe that it was. We believe that the Alaska Mosque ended up using that wood. And eventually the mosque found the wood to be too old. Like I said, that's when they remodeled. And so we ask, well, where did that wood end up? Well, some of it is probably right here in front of us. That's right. There's a good chance that this wood was used in the building of Solomon's Temple. I'll let you in on a little secret. There's a man that I once got to meet who was able to get a lot of this wood, as in a lot, a lot, way more than what we're seeing right here. The Rockefeller Museum just has a little bit of it. And this man now keeps it in a shed. Mm Mm-hmm. He keeps the wood from the temple in a shed. Yep. I hope that one day we'll actually be able to make it over to his place. It's just a a quick kind of day trip away and we'll be able to see it because it's something that most people don't know exists. But I want you as a virtual voyager to have an out of this world Israel experience. So we'll see if we can make it happen. I'll make a few phone calls and, and let you know. For now, I hope that you can enjoy this interesting story of this wood's history. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we head to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and visit the Shrine of the Book, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed. Soon after, we'll head to Qumran, where we will actually see the spot where they excavated those various scrolls. You won't want to miss it! See you next time on the virtual voyage.